0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Darrell Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Unhealthy use of alcohol has the potential to affect not only the individual who consumes the alcohol, but a variety of others as well. Alcohol, it's the most commonly used addictive substance with an estimated prevalence of about seven percent of the U.S. population. Excessive use has the potential to cause damage to essentially every organ system, and it's thought to reduce one's life expectancy by approximately 10 years. Whereas treatment is available and has the potential to be very successful, it often requires an ongoing lifetime of therapy. Today's podcast will discuss alcoholism, and our guest is Dr. Terry Schneekloth a psychiatrist and addiction medicine specialist. Dr. Sneakloth is the chair of psychiatry and psychology at the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona. Today we'll discuss when you should suspect alcoholism in your patients, how to make a diagnosis and which management techniques have been shown to be effective. Terry, welcome and thank you so much for joining us for this really important topic.
1: Well, Thank you, Daryl, for including me in the podcast. I'm really delighted to be with you today to talk about alcoholism and alcohol use problems.
0: Well, is alcoholism still an appropriate term? I mean, there's multiple terms out there. Alcohol abuse, alcoholism, alcohol dependence, alcohol use disorder. Do they all mean the same thing?
1: I think the definitions are a great way for us to start and thinking about the problem of alcohol use and you know as you point out the term alcoholism is an old one it has a lot of negative baggage or connotations that go with it i encourage particularly clinicians to think about alcohol in five categories regarding the relationship between a person and alcohol just in brief, the first category is about 25% of our population, which are those people who do not use alcohol at all. They're completely abstinent, and that number is shrinking. It used to be about a third of the population. People choose not to drink because they don't like the taste. They don't like the experience because of religious reasons, health reasons. Then the majority of people in the US are social drinkers. So really, the second category is social drinking. It's most people. Many people are surprised that over 50% of social drinkers use less than 12 drinks in a year. So while there are many people out there that drink more, high percent of the population drinking very little, choosing to drink very little. The next category of the five is what I'm gonna call at-risk drinking. And that is a term used by the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. What at-risk drinking means is that people are drinking beyond what is recommended by the National Institute of Health. And it doesn't mean that it's an alcohol problem per se, or it's an addiction, but it means the dose of alcohol is high enough to do damage to their physical or emotional health. And for men under 65, that's more than four in any one event. So more than four is a binge or more than 14 in a week. And for women, based on different body water status, it's any more than three in one event or one day, and any more than seven in a week. So I think it's important to come back to those at risk drinkers because many physicians see those at risk drinkers in their office. And it's an important part of their healthcare to talk about it. You know, the fourth category are what we call the abusers. And that is when people are drinking enough that they're starting to have life problems related to their drinking, but they're not addicted to it. So the abusers can say, I'm drinking too much, my physician has said I need to slow down, and they can back down and resume a prior pattern of social drinking or limited drinking. And often this is where we make the distinction between the abuser and the person who is addicted, because one of the symptoms of alcoholism or alcohol dependence is that you repeatedly fail in those attempts to reduce your dose and lose control over your drinking. So the fifth category is that category that was called alcoholism. Then it was defined as addiction and redefined as alcohol dependence. Now, according to the diagnostic nomenclature we use, the DSM-5, it is moderate to severe alcohol use disorder. But all those mean that a person has become addicted to that substance.
0: So how do we pick up symptoms that patients may give us that would suggest they have a problem with alcohol?
1: These come out both in the physical exam and in the clinical evaluation or collecting history from the patient or from the patient's partner, family members, You know, most common symptom that might come to the attention of a physician is patient having any concern themselves, which they often won't, but they might say, my spouse or my kids say maybe I should cut back a little bit. When family becomes concerned and concerned enough to express it to their loved ones who generally don't receive it that well that it likely has picked up and there are negative aspects to their life because of it. It either gets in the way of socializing, they have had legal problems such as a DUI, they maybe are going late to work, or the family is concerned that they have health problems from it. So that history, and then certainly the physical exam, which there may be stigmata or be through their laboratory testing, showing up through their liver function test, or potentially a macrocytosis that is picked up on a a standard blood panel.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the role that genetics plays. I, I know some of the patients that I have who have been identified as those who have an alcohol problem often have other family members who have had issues with alcohol as well. How important is genetics in this?
1: It is huge, but it's about half of it. If anyone has a parent who has an alcohol use problem or alcohol dependence, they run a 50 to 60% risk of having it themselves. The genetic investigations to this point, you know, haven't Pinpointed the one alcoholism gene, there seems to be multiple genes that are related to predisposition, but one phenotype that is associated with alcohol use problems is early high tolerance. Those people that might be referred to as the heavyweight, someone who can drink more than their friends, drink faster than their friends, and not even appear to be under the influence of alcohol, they are the ones that tend to go on to develop the drinking problems. And there was a very well done study now uh, two to three decades ago done by Dr. Shuckett, who is a national leader in alcohol research. And it showed that the sons of alcoholics who had early high tolerance by their late adolescence or college years, when they were followed out over two decades, they were the ones that were very likely to go on to develop drinking problems. So it's, it's definitely there. And it's something that children of alcoholics or if the grandparents are alcoholics, they should be advised about the caution with mm-hmm. the amount they drink.
0: All right. Is alcoholism different from other substance use conditions?
1: Well, that's a, a very interesting question, because in terms of what we know about the brain rewards system or the pathways that are affected by alcohol, cannabis, other substances of abuse, potentially other behavioral addictions that you know people might think about in terms of computer addiction, gambling, pathologically, sexual addictions, that some of these reward pathways in the brain are associated with many of them. Where I think alcohol is different for us, that apart from those parts of the world where alcohol is prohibited from cultural or religious reasons, alcohol is ubiquitous. It's been a part of human history for millennia, and it's part of religious events. It's part of social events. It may just be part of daily fluid consumption. And as we see in our own country, that going into most restaurants, were very quickly offered alcohol and trying different types of alcohol has become part of our dining experience so that pressure and that socialization often leads to people having a fair degree of exposure early on in a real social self-consciousness if they're choosing not to drink. And so those are our major factors that affect people in trying alcohol. And, and we're seeing that much more now with cannabis, where it has become legal or decriminalized or where there's medical cannabis, that social acceptance is increasing the rates of use and then also the rates of problem use.
0: hmm well, and also when you compare it to substances such as opioids, it's certainly easily available, it's legal, as you mentioned, it's, a, it's part of our social life, and for most, it's pretty affordable.
1: That's right. I mean, it can be anything from very expensive for people that can afford it, or it could be very inexpensive. And the accessibility is generally there and easily available from high school on up. Unfortunately, cannabis has become much more available to even children in grade schools and in middle schools. So that's where many youth are now starting and then make a transition to alcohol during later adolescence.
0: You mentioned earlier some of the symptoms patients may describe to us that may give us a clue that they may have an alcohol problem. What about lab abnormalities? What might mean we notice on kind of routine labs that we commonly order?
1: For most general physicians to keep in mind that the GGT is the most sensitive LFT to picking up higher dose alcohol use. And it's not commonly done as most of most standard panels. Now, the AST, which is often collected, and if it's collected in conjunction with an ALT, you can look at AST-ALT ratio, which is not uncommonly, two to one in people who are regularly using higher doses of alcohol. I mentioned macrocytosis. There was an interesting study that found that, yes, um, macrocytosis is associated not uncommonly with alcohol use problems, but much more in men. The study showed that uh, approximately 80% of men who are under age 60 if they have a macrocytosis, it's associated with excessive alcohol use. Whereas for women in that same age group, it was only 34% of the macrocytosis that was associated with alcohol. So to be watching for that, but really discriminating between male and female patients. For physicians who are suspecting alcohol use in patients who say they're not drinking, All we used to have available for us was immediately using a breathalyzer to see if they were under the influence of alcohol or a urine drug screen, which only picks up alcohol for perhaps eight to 10 hours after the last drink. Now there are two tests available that are commonly used in monitoring programs or general clinical practice, an ethylglucuronide test, which is a urine test that is 100% sensitive for any kind of alcohol exposure for uh, the first 40 hours. So it's really much more effective if the clinician is trying to figure out, has this person been drinking, and is this why they're physically affected? Even a newer test, Hath testing, or phosphatidyl ethanol, which is a, a serum test, but it picks up any drinking really for up to 12 days. So using that test even twice a month monitors for people who say that they're abstinent, but maybe are actively drinking surreptitiously.
0: Let's talk about making a diagnosis. How is a diagnosis made? It must be more than just the total amount of alcohol consumed. You're
1: right. It has, in some respects, very little to the total amount consumed. The DSM has 11 symptoms, and they're mostly behavioral symptoms, not physiologic symptoms. Important to recall as you look at that list of 11 that a mild alcohol use disorder is only two to three of the 11 symptoms, and that is the abuse category. Moderate alcohol use disorder is four to five of the symptoms and six and higher is a severe alcohol use disorder. And what they capture are several things. And looking over the 11, two of them really get at the whole issue of loss of control, that a person is persistently drinking in higher amounts over longer periods than they intend to and that they fail in their attempts to reduce or to stop drinking other symptoms are related to the amount of time people are spending drinking recovering from drinking or negative life consequences like legal consequences or doing things that potentially put themselves in danger when people catch themselves going to pick up their children you know, from a school event, and they're under the influence of alcohol, but they're taking that risk of not only driving under the influence, but driving with their children in the car. If there is persistent use when the physician has recommended that they cut back on their drinking, that is one of the symptoms. Or if they have emotional problems, such as depression or anxiety worsened by drinking, then there are the physiologic symptoms, which include increased tolerance. And so many people who have been drinking over time and developing a drinking problem, they no longer get a buzz from three or four drinks, and so they're ramping it up to six or seven, and then they might ramp it up further. You know, We see many people who have been drinking for several decades that are drinking a 12 pack or more a day, and then withdrawal symptoms or cravings to drink. So there really is a spectrum, but most of them are behavioral and not related to any specific quantity that gives us the diagnosis.
0: Mm -hmm. You mentioned the importance of the provider recommending the patient cut back on their alcohol use. Is there evidence that that is successful?
1: It won't be successful if they truly have an addiction because they're likely to fail. But that is generally what most patients are going to want to do. And it's not unreasonable to attempt that, but with very specific goals, because then at the next appointment, there's going to be something to talk about. And it may appear that somebody has a very clear addiction, and yet their increased drinking may be in the context of a specifically devastating life event, and they find that they can do it. And that is diagnostic, really, in terms of they were using in higher doses or abusive of alcohol, but hadn't crossed over into an addiction. But as you point out, for many people, if they've been, you know, if they are addicted, particularly those who have been addicted for a long time, that isn't going to work. But then their physician will be able to say, okay, we tried this, it really didn't work. And if there are other physical symptoms, they may be means of motivating the patient to take a period of abstinence. And in perhaps enter some counseling or type of programming.
0: So in the patient that admits they need some help, what are the components of treatment that we have available today?
1: You know, what amazed people in my field where we thought everyone with a drinking problem needed us to get off alcohol. So there is a study called NISARC that was done by the National Institute of Health two decades ago now, which showed that the majority of alcoholics stopped drinking without any professional help whatsoever. And so many people come to that point that they believe they're drinking too much and they stop completely, remove it from the house. Many of them might go to AA meetings. And I think this is important to point out because the intervention of the primary care provider can be very significant and expressing concern because people trust their primary physician. You're going to trust that primary physician even more than the mental health professional, generally. So a brief intervention, a recommending stopping. For people open to it, meeting with a substance abuse counselor, meeting with an addiction psychiatrist like myself or a general psychiatrist to review for any comorbid psychiatric disorders, but also the severity of the substance use problem. They are likely then to be referred to either individual counseling, an outpatient program, or if they're, they've tried to stop and have been unable to do it successfully to a residential level program.
0: Is there any pharmacologic treatment which has been helpful?
1: You know, there are several. There are three FDA-approved medications to Reduce drinking or decrease craving. The one that has been targeted specifically at alcohol craving and it works with the glutamatergic system in the brain is a camprosate. And a camprasate really dampens the potentiation of glutamate, which is the most common excitatory neurotransmitter in people who have stopped drinking. And so a camper site is taken three times a day it shouldn't be started until people are off alcohol for at least 10 days that's when it's been found to be most effective but that can diminish craving prolong abstinence there's also naltrexone which is available both orally as well in an injectable form which seems to affect the reward mechanism by blocking opioid receptors. So people don't experience the pleasure they formerly experienced in drinking and then are much less likely to drink in a higher dose. Mm -hmm. The problem with the medication is that when people want to start drinking again and they're really disappointed that they can't become intoxicated, they'll stop the medication unless they're on that long-acting form. And then there's the very old medication, disulfiram or Antabuse which gives people a reaction with any drinking that is extremely unpleasant with flushing, nausea, vomiting, can affect their blood pressure. And so it really serves as a deterrent to going back to drinking. You know, there are three off-label medications that have also been found in studies to be helpful, including baclofen, topiramate, and gabapentin. So we have a small arsenal that the numbers needed to treat you know, tend to be about one in seven, one in 10, but for some individuals, they're extremely helpful.
0: Do we know the long-term outlook for patients who have been identified with an alcohol problem and have undergone some type of formal treatment way down the road? How effective is that?
1: A general answer to your question is about 30% of people have completed a residential treatment and intensive outpatient programs remain completely abstinent one year later. The difficulty even in tracking down this kind of information and being able to generalize the information is that you know we're often comparing apples and oranges. There are going to be different degrees of abstinence based upon age. Younger people are much less likely to remain abstinent than elderly are. When they go through a treatment program there can be gender differences there can be differences related to the extent of the comorbid psychopathology so people who have a comorbid depressive disorder or anxiety disorder are less likely to stay sober you know what has really changed over the course of my career is the number of people who are only using alcohol as opposed to people who are using alcohol and cannabis or combining a number of substances and people who are polysubstance abusers or polysubstance dependent are much less likely to maintain their abstinence. So a number of those factors cause variance in the rates across the programs. The quality of the program itself and the intensity of the program will make huge differences
0: too. How about the patient where we know they have an alcohol problem they know they have a problem but they're unwilling to get help is there anything we can do to help those individuals
1: you know i think the best thing that the primary care physician can do is affirm their concerns and be direct and honest with them about the facts. You know, that it looks like you've got a fatty liver. This is what your ultrasound is showing. I'm concerned about these laboratory tests because this can affect your liver over time. Let's check out your heart. Whatever is factually associated with their drinking or potentially associated if their primary care physician is treating hypertension, to be talking with them about this is likely exacerbating your hypertension or why we're having to go from one agent to another or add them and documenting those conversations. The patients that I've been most readily able to move towards treatment after I see them are those who come with several years of notes from their primary care physician, that this has been a long conversation. And then I'll be able to say, Dr. Cheka has been documenting all this for you across a long time. If the two of you have talked about it, that it's been a concern and what it tends to really do is jog their memory and break through some of that denial and resistance and motivate people to get help. So to see this as, you know, a marathon and that there is going to be resistance that part of addiction is denial, rationalization, minimizations of the amount they drink. But over time, it often takes sort of that moment that they decide, okay, I need to stop this.
0: Can individuals who have a history of alcoholism ever return to acceptable use of alcohol?
1: If someone meets the criteria, it's very unlikely that they'd be able to go back to drinking, which is why going back to the advent of AA and self-help meetings and the beginning of addiction treatment programs across the country over 50 to 60 years ago, the emphasis is on abstinence. Because what a person with an addiction wants to do is be able to go back to be a social drinker. And it's why their repeated attempts fail. And it's why there is that abstinence emphasis, that the likelihood of going back is extremely high. Now, does that mean that no one has ever done it? Clearly, when it happens, it's unclear were they addicted to begin with, or were they more an alcohol abuser who was able to stop? But, you know, whatever is changing in the brain, and again, we know about some of that circuitry and pathways, but there's not anything that we can specifically look at on a brain scan and say, you know, they've crossed this line and they can never go back.
0: Let's say we have a patient who has, had an, al- has an alcohol problem. They are, have been successfully treated. They've been abstinent. What do we as primary care providers need to know or to do when we're providing care to a patient like that? Do we need to treat them any differently in terms of what we prescribe or what we recommend?
1: The best thing that the primary care provider can do is to speak openly about how they're doing with their recovery you know, address this as one medical problem, affirming their abstinence, really breaking from some of the stigma or taboo, this is something I can't talk about, or this is gonna be something shameful for me to ask you about. But to see it as part of their health care that you're checking in, and then like anything that they're doing really well, whether they're monitoring their A1C, whether they're keeping on track with their hypertension management, that this is another problem that could really damage their health and you wanna see how they're doing with it, with a recognition that the success rates are very comparable to other medical conditions and that they can do extremely well and and also to keep in mind because it is a chronic condition there are people who can do well for years and then slip back to drinking and so to maintain that level of vigilance and monitoring the liver function test or looking within laboratory testing for any evidence of relapse
0: what i was wondering about was we are now using cannabis products for medical reasons Um, we will occasionally prescribe an opioid for pain management Is that acceptable in a patient who's had a history of alcohol problems?
1: You know, thank you for bringing it up and and emphasizing that component of what the physician should be watching for, because I've mentioned earlier, these common circuits or pathways in the brain that are affected by every substance of abuse. So someone recovering from alcoholism is going to be much more at risk for experiencing relapse after being treated with opioids. And I would say that in terms of cannabis products and the similarities in that they are both nervous system depressants that there's a very high risk of cross addiction and if anything else can be used it would be preferably used for management and for instance you know many patients i'm seeing they you know had a cannabis use disorder or alcoholism and then because of Nausea is suggested they try cannabis. You know, much better to put them on something that's not going to be a substance of abuse. And to monitor after, say, a surgery for someone who is alcoholic that they are getting off the opioid in the same time frame that anyone else with that condition would be expected to. And I might add too that people with high alcohol tolerance, with a history of alcoholism, may require even more opioids than patients who had not been exposed to high doses of alcohol because of the cross tolerance. And anesthesiologists watch for this, will often comment on a greater dose need in patients with a history of alcoholism. So they definitely need to get the dose to manage the pain, manage the anesthesia, but then to be sure to have that dose reduced, say on an outpatient basis, when primary care is seeing them back and follow up after any kind of procedure.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, Terry, you've given us a lot of useful information. Can you give us kind of a summary with maybe two or three key points of importance regarding alcoholism?
1: You know, probably the first point is just how common drinking problems are in a society where 75% of people drink, but that one in five men who drink have some sort of drinking problem over the course of their life. So roughly 20%, 10% of women. So this is very common and just anticipate that if a patient has a drinking problem, they are going to have a defense system that would include denial, minimization and rationalization. So much of the history needs to be gotten from collateral sources, from family members or picking up on this from the laboratory test. I mentioned earlier that this is a long process and to not anticipate that the patient is necessarily on the first conversation Going to take the opportunity to see an addiction professional or even have a period of reducing use, but to bring the topic up again and to talk about it in a very neutral way and factual-based way about the effects of the alcohol. And then finally to remember that this is highly treatable. And sometimes out of frustration about someone who is resistant about treatment, there can be a sense of this problem doesn't go away, people don't get better. And that couldn't be further from the truth, that the majority of people who develop drinking problems overcome those drinking problems.
0: Well, we've been discussing alcoholism and alcohol use disorder with addiction specialist and psychiatrist, Dr. Terry Sneakloth from the Mayo Clinic. Terry, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today.
1: Ah, Thank you, Daryl. It's my pleasure.